Welcome to Newer Church with Corey Turner. We pray you encounter God and become more like Jesus through this message. To find out more, visit us at numa.church. Happy Christmas, everyone. We want you to have an amazing day tomorrow. And uh, just to let you know, there's no 4 p.m. service this afternoon uh, for those who were planning to attend. But we'll be back in a few weeks with our 4 p.m. service along with our 9-11-30 continues over the coming weeks. Uh, some of the teams taking a bit of a break, as I know some of you are, but we're still following Jesus. We're still hosting um, our church gatherings and services, and we're so excited about all that God has in store for us in 2024. Who's excited about 2024? So good to have Pastor Glenn and Lynn Blakeney here. They've been at Numa Melbourne North, and uh, their son Tyler and their daughter-in-law. It's an honor to have you guys here, so welcome. And... Um, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1, 1 to 17. Uh, the Lord was really clear with me yesterday about preaching from this passage and it's been on my heart for a while. At some point, some Christmas time, I was going to preach from Matthew 1 and uh, today is the day. Um, so you're going to be sort of like, where on earth are we going with it? But just hang in there, we're going somewhere. Matthew 1, 1 to 17. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of of Ram, that's a rather unfortunate name. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, if your name's Ram here, I'm sorry. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Pink Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Note that name, Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon. By the wife of Uriah, note that phrase, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, note that. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. Aren't I doing well? I'm doing so, I practice this. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so all the generations, verse 17, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. 
from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the generation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I want to speak to you today on this idea, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. Just turn to someone next to you and say, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. Now, one of the more humorous strategies of cancel culture, of which is prolific in Australia, many nations around the world, particularly in media, government, academia, lots of different pillars and mountains of influence in the world. One of the more humorous strategies of cancel culture has been to attempt to remove Jesus Christ from Christmas. And apart from the fact that Jesus is the reason for the season, it's comedic to observe, as you can tell I'm laughing about it, it's comedic to observe intelligent, educated people try to explain Jesus away in the name of inclusion. And these attempts and these strategies take many forms and many expressions. And to be honest with you, I can't be bothered even articulating what all of them are to help inform you. But you know it when you hear it. You know it when you see it. You know it when it's happening. It's happening in workplaces all across our city, all across our nation and all around the world. It's happening in media. It's happening in government. It's happening in the shaping of policy in the United Nations. It's happening in lots of different forums and expressions. And while secularists and humanists and atheists go to great lengths to try and stamp out and rub out the person of Jesus Christ, not just from his impact in human history, but from the holidays and the festivals and the, the significant calendar events that have shaped this world and have shaped our culture and shaped our lives, they forget that the war on Christmas actually began 2,000 years ago. It was an event called the Massacre of the Innocents, where King Herod attempted to wipe out King Jesus before he even got started and could grow into an adolescent and grow into an adult and grow into a mature man to exert any influence. He sent an army to the region of which they said that Jesus was going to be born and all of the males aged two and below, the Bible tells us that he committed genocide. He committed a massacre. Weeping was heard in Ramah and there was a trail of destruction that he left behind him. And although he went to great lengths, he failed trying to destroy Jesus' life. And if you trace the, the history books from that experience or that massacre all the way through to now, there has been despots and evil tyrants and regimes and revolutions and philosophers and educators and artists and all sorts of people that have attempted to destroy and to remove the influence of Jesus Christ, not just from Christmas, but from human history, and not one of them has succeeded. And the reason why is because Jesus Christ cannot be cancelled. 
you, you, you can't philosophize him out of human history. You can't hypothesize him out of your need for him. Nothing in culture, nothing in the cosmos, nothing in the spirit world, nothing that we can produce out of our own strength can actually cancel Jesus out. Why? Because he's not just an historical figure. He's not just a philosopher, a doer of good deeds. He's not just a servant, as Luke's gospel recalls, of suffering humanity. He is the Son of God. He is the eternal Word. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the Savior of the world. He's the center person, the center point of all human history. And once the eyes of our heart have been enlightened to this truth, every other stumbling block of faith falls away. So many Christians even live with a lack of assurance about their own salvation. A lack of assurance about their own faith. Lacking assurance in the person of Jesus Christ. Catching themselves thinking, do I really believe all this? Is this really real? Or have I just made this up as a figment of my imagination? Are we caught all up in a bizarre matrix of things and we're just making these things up. So many people live with doubts and live with assurance and there's nothing wrong with a lack of assurance. There's nothing wrong with having doubts. It's where you bring your doubts. It's what you do with your doubts. Because once the eyes of your heart are illuminated and enlightened to the person and reality of who Jesus is, there is an assurance and gift of faith that is given to you that actually transforms not just your heart, but your entire life. And every Christmas time, we must pause to reflect and be in awe of this simple, wonderful truth that the God of all creation incarnated himself into human form and became just like us. What on earth does this have to do with the genealogy of Jesus? The answer is everything. Because in Matthew chapter 1, what we see is the beginnings of an account of Jesus Christ and Jesus' life as not just a king, but a king over a kingdom. In fact, Matthew is the lead gospel that gives us a revelation of theology, an insight into Jesus as king over a kingdom. When we speak of the kingdom of God, we're speaking about the the governing rule, the influence or the governing realm of King Jesus. In fact, the key word in the gospel of Matthew is kingdom. The first message that Jesus came preaching in Matthew 4 was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want access to the fullness of the kingdom, if you want entrance into the kingdom of God, it requires a change of thinking. And so we see in Matthew this beautiful tapestry, this weaving together of all of these concepts and ideas pointing to, and even in chapter 1, in the generational line of Jesus, the reason why we see David and the reason why we see different people in Jesus' generational line is to point us to the fact that Jesus is the King of Kings and He is the Lord of Lords. Now, in chapter 1, Matthew includes a list 
of the who's who in Jesus' genealogy. He begins with Abraham, 14 generations later. He comes to King David, 14 generations after that, to the deportation of the Jews from Israel to Babylon, 14 generations after that. We bump into and collide with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what Matthew does, he gives us fascinating insight into literally 42 generations of different people, notable people, some unknown people, but definitely a group of people that are a part of Jesus' story and therefore our story. And included within the list are a bunch of people that if I was Father God wanting this to be recorded in eternal holy writ for everyone on the planet to read one day, I would not have included the list of people that were here in this list. Because some of them were rat bags and some of them were a little bit naughty and some of them did some things that wouldn't get them on, you know, like uh, St. Francis of Assisi or some churches, you know, board on a wall as being the contributors to helping build that church. These are not the sort of people, Jesus, you would want in your generational line. What are some of these names? Well, it begins with Abraham. For all of the rhetoric about Father Abraham and how he was a man of faith and what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham, the fact is, for 25 years, Abraham really struggled to trust God. Who in this room has ever struggled to trust God apart from me? The rest of you lying spirits come out. (laughs) Abraham struggled to trust God. Abraham was impatient. He's like you and I. He wants it now. And he was prepared to go to great lengths in order to secure in his own strength and his own flesh what God had promised. There are some things that God has promised you, no matter how hard you try, what you do, your flesh will not secure. You actually have to go through the process. It's a process of trust and faith and not leaning on your own understanding. You can't click your fingers, wave a magic wand, and everything just turn back to normal. Sometimes your healing is a process. Sometimes your breakthrough is a process. Sometimes, Abraham, the thing you want is a process. So Abraham sleeps with his wife's mistress, Hagar, verse Ishmael, and you and I, thousands of years later, are reaping the consequences of that choice. So Abraham's in Jesus' generational line. Secondly, Jacob. Jacob was known as a cheater, supplanter, and deceiver. He cheated his brother of his birthright. He stole his father's blessing uh, from Esau. He was on the run for most of his days. And yet, the favor of God was on him. And yet, he's included in Jesus' generational line. Then we come to Rahab. This is a saucy one. Rahab was a prostitute. She got paid. Her employment was sexual intimacy. Paid to pleasure other people. Hang on a second, Jesus. Can't we just wipe that one off the list? I mean, that's a little bit out there. I'm not sure my religiosity is comfortable with that. And yet in the Gospels, we read that the very people who were the outcasts, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the gluttons, the sinners, were the ones who were most drawn and attracted to Jesus. 
were compelled towards him, while those who were convinced of their own righteousness and religiosity were repelled by him. Jesus has a way of of polarizing those who carry their own pride and self-righteousness and religiosity and actually drawing people who know that they're in desperate need of a saviour and know that they're in desperate need of grace. And here is Rahab, didn't need to be included in the list, but she is. Then we have David. David, we've been preaching a lot about David. I love David, my favourite character in the Bible. Man of passion, a man of the presence, a man who was prepared to spend anything, do anything, move anything, change anything in order to host the presence of God. Oh, don't you love David? And yet, whilst David was known as a man after God's own heart, the Bible also defines him as a man of blood. He was a man of war and a man of blood. He murdered Uriah. He slept with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And yet somehow, in God's grace, God blesses ultimately that union. And Solomon is born and becomes the wealthiest and wisest king in Israel's history. Then we come to Uzziah. Uzziah started well, but then he fell into pride and unfaithfulness to God by offering up unauthorized fire in the temple. Leprosy broke out on his body and he had to be isolated to the day of his death. He died a leper, lonely and isolated. He's in Jesus' generational line. Then tops off the list, Manasseh. Anyone who's read the Chronicles or the Kings uh, uh, books of the Bible knows that Manasseh was an evil tyrant of a king. He burned his own sons to death, offering them up as sacrifices to a false god. In 2 Chronicles 33.6, Manasseh is defined as using fortune-telling, omens, sorcery. He dealt with mediums and necromancers. Even if you don't know what the word necromancer mean, you know it's bad. And necromance means that there were people who actually would raise up the spirits of dead people to consult with them to find out information. And the Bible says that Manasseh did so much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, it's one thing to to sort of have a bad day. It's another thing to get on God's bad side. And he's so provoked to anger that he actually wants to smite you and wipe you out. And then if you read the story of Manasseh, the Bible says he did more evil than all of the other kings but in one moment he was repentant and God stepped back and showed him extreme grace Manasseh is in Jesus generational line this is not exactly the list of people you want in your annual family Christmas photo with Santa. It's not like, oh, just bring Rahab in. Just bring Manasseh in, who's actually sacrificed their own kids to a false god. Let's just have a pleasant photo with Santa. This is not the list of people that if I was God, and probably if you were God, you would include in your list. But God says, write him in there. I mean, God, can't we have like Daniel? I mean, he had a pretty good track record in Babylon. He he looked like he had it all worked out together. He was a man of prayer. and 
He, he, he was wise and he interpreted dreams and God used him to shape human history, even in the midst of being in exile. I mean, can't we have S? I mean, at least she was good looking and incredibly attractive and really didn't put a foot wrong, but uh, was willing to perish and die. And she went to the king. I mean, can't we have Daniel and S? I mean, what about Billy Graham? I mean, you know, like... You know, if Billy Graham and I were jumping off a building, Billy Graham would just suspend in the air. I'd be going down. Why can't we have Mother Teresa in Jesus' generational line? I mean, Jesus, surely there's some other people that we could have included in your genealogy. But in fact, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world had in his generational line cheaters, supplanters, deceivers, prostitutes, murderers, prideful people, and evil tyrants. People like you and me. The very people Jesus came to seek and save were in his very own story. What does this tell us? This tells me That many of us look at our sin, we look at our weaknesses, we look at our inadequacies and we wrongly conclude that it disqualifies us from Jesus saving us or from Jesus ever using us. And if that's you today, I'm here to tell you, according to Jesus' generational line, you've concluded wrong. Because these are often the very things that God uses not only to redeem you from, but if you would allow him for him to get glory in. And if it's good enough for the Son of God, in 2023 at Christmas time, it should be good enough for you. So stop sidelining yourself. Stop discounting yourself. Stop disqualifying yourself. Stop being like my grandfather. I remember sitting next to my grandfather years ago in an altar call in a church in the 90s. And uh, my mum and dad were hosting this event and opened up the altars. My grandmother got out of her chair, walked down the front, surrendered her life to Christ. My grandfather didn't. I said, Pa, if you want to walk down, I'll walk down with you. You need to surrender your life to Christ. I was that desperate. And we'd been praying. And in fact, he is still alive. He turns 103 in a few days' time. And I believe the sole reason, yes, Turners have good genes. And, And the sole reason... The sole reason I believe that that man is still alive is God is so gracious and he's so kind. And my father, for nearly 30 years, every Monday has gone to him wherever he is and has shared the love of Jesus with him for 30 years. And on that day, I said, Pa, would you come down the front with me? And he said, oh, I could never do that. If I walked down there, the roof would fall in. Have you ever talked to someone with that? Silly misconception. Like everyone else in the room is really holy. He said, I could never do that. God could never forgive me for the things I've done. I said, Pa, you don't know who Jesus is then. Because my Pa had a picture, an idea of a God that was distant and angry with him, of a God that didn't care, that wanted him to perform according to all the rules and regulations when he missed that who Jesus was, was love personified. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
So that whosoever would believe in him, whosoever. There's a bunch of whosoever's in this room today. Whosoever, from the youngest, middle-aged, to the most mature and oldest. Whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You yourself might feel that you've done so many bad things. How could God possibly forgive you? How could God possibly use you? And yet the Bible alone, let alone history books, are filled with story after story and testimony after testimony. Even with the criminal hanging on the cross, as he was about to breathe his final breath, he said, Jesus, would you remember me today in paradise? And Jesus doesn't judge him. He said, you'll be with me today. You'll be with me today. I don't know about you. I find the grace of God, the love of God, mind-blowing. I actually, if you try and think about it too much, your brain might explode. Does anyone ever feel like that? You read the Gospels and you're like, who is this Jesus? Everybody wants a king like Jesus. Everybody wants a father like our heavenly father. Everybody wants to be loved by Jesus. And the reality is you can be. Because Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you weren't seeking him, he was seeking you. When you showed no initiative to drawing closer to him, he did everything necessary, all the heavy lifting, gave the darling of heaven, his very own son, so that you could be restored and reconciled back into right relationship with God. Before you even knew you had sin in your life. Before you knew that you were selfish, rotten little so-and-so. He did everything necessary. He foretold it in Genesis 3, the fallenness of humanity. He prophesied it through the major prophets and the minor prophets. It became a reality 2,000 years ago. And for the last 2,000 years, for those who are willing to lean in, to open up their heart, to humble themselves, to listen, that invitation, that call for reconciliation and relationship is still there. On the other hand, there could be some people in the room you may feel like you don't need forgiveness because you haven't committed any big ones, you know, the big ones. So as long as you give to charity, grow nice flowers (laughs) and help the elderly across the road, you're a winner. And I don't need forgiveness because I'm a nice, good person. Do you know a lot of Aussies think that of themselves? They really do. And they could be more the son of the devil than what they realize. Pharisees and religious leaders memorized the law, had everything worked out 
observed it, even added to it to prove their righteousness. Turn the traditions of man into the commandments of God. And Jesus said, you're a son of the devil. Because it's not just the external observance of stuff. It's what's going on in your heart. And so you might feel justified and self-righteous because you haven't done what somebody else has done and so you live in contrast and comparison and yet you're as much in need of forgiveness as the rest of us. Romans 3.23 says, For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 14.3 says, We've all turned aside, we've all become corrupt, there is none who does good, not even one. So no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, what you've achieved in life, there's no amount of success, educational status, wealth, who's in your network, how many gold medals or not you've won. It really doesn't matter. Those things matter in this world. They don't matter in the next. We all need a saviour. We all desperately need Jesus to still be the reason for the season. We all still need grace and acceptance and discipleship and growth in maturity in Him. I love what 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So Jesus' birth, His death, And his resurrection is God's solution to humanity's greatest problem. This year we've seen a lot of problems on on TV screens. Whether it's what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Eastern Europe, what's going on with the economy, what's happening in politics and finance and pop culture, whatever it is, problems, problems, problems. But humanity's greatest problem are not actually, all those things are surface issues. Humanity's greatest problem is that we've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. And so when it comes to the birth of Jesus, there are three authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all present to us Jesus' birth, the greatest story ever told, with details. Obviously, you've already heard Matthew speaks to us about King Jesus Over a kingdom, the gospel of Mark speaks to the immediacy of the miraculous intervention of the Messiah. You always read in Mark, immediately. It's like repeated a million times. It's the one word. It's speaking about the intervention of the kingdom of heaven in earthly affairs. Miracles, signs, wonders. You you, want to look at signs and wonders? Read the gospel of Mark. And then you come to Luke and Dr. Luke is giving us a picture of the servant of suffering humanity, the suffering king, the suffering Lord, the suffering saviour, who has compassion on the crowds and on the sheep because they're helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so when Matthew, Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels, record for us an account of Jesus' birth, we read all of these details. We read about Mary and Joseph. I'm so glad that Mary didn't say, Angel, you're smoking crack. You don't know what you're on about. Uh, I'll just live my best life now. No, she said, be it unto you according to your word. Yeah. 
We're all fascinated. We're like, God, I want you to speak to me. I want you to use me. Hang on a sec. She's a teenage girl. The angel shows up, appears to her and tells her, you are going to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Can we all just stop and acknowledge how out there and crazy that is? Lord, I want you to speak to me. Really? Because once you hear something, you're accountable to it. You want to walk closer to the flame. You want to hear his voice. You want to hear his word. Once he reveals it, you're accountable. And Mary does not balk. She says, be it unto me. According to your word. She ponders these things in her heart. Joseph, on the other hand, is not too cool about the appearance of things. Hang on a sec, something's gone on here. And being a just and devout man, he wants to do the right thing and not bring shame to his betrothed. So he steps back. He has to be warned in a dream that what's happening is of God. And some of us struggle to believe God for our finances. We struggle to believe God for the salvation of our family members. We struggle to believe God that he could intervene and bring breakthrough in the world's situations. I'm telling you, just the birth of Jesus' story alone, the story of Jesus' birth is enough to inspire faith inside all of us. Then Mary and Joseph, according to the census of the Roman Empire at that time, have to return because they're a part of the Davidic line to Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem and they go to find a hotel and the hotel manager has a brain fade, has no prophetic unction whatsoever, is practical, functional, administrative. No, we have no room, but there's a cave or a stable Right? Most probably a cave. Not actually a stable as nativity scenes show. But there's animals in it. There's a feeding trough in it. You go in there. Then we have angels appearing to shepherds. Then shepherds just miraculously find their way because of the star. Then the three wise mystics come. This is more crazy than days of our lives. (laughs) Don't worry about Elf on a Shelf. This is Jesus. (laughs) Disney and Pixar got nothing. On the Bible. And, and so you have Jesus born in a feeding trough. People come and bring so expensive, such was the expense of the gifts, that we have some idea of what it could be astronomical, and, and yet we fully don't realise or encapsulate the significance of what took place that night. All of these details are provided for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, there's just one big idea, and that is the eternal word, the living word, Jesus is that living word, actually became a little baby, became flesh, and lived among us. Wow. And the Bible says in verse 14 of John 1, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I, I, I just I ask questions. Do you ask questions of the Bible? 
I read and I ask questions. And I go, this is a mystery. The greatest mystery of faith is why would the God of all the universe, of all creation, of eternity, sovereign God, come and dwell with us as a little baby? I mean, he could have come as a conquering king. He could have come and introduced, you know, technological advances and nuclear fusion and all sorts of things and built and created the greatest empire and kingdom there ever was. He's the son of God. He can do whatever he wants. He speaks a word and the sun in all of its brilliance and glory comes into existence. And yet he comes as a little baby. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is because God is humble. It's his nature. God didn't come to earth in a raging whirlwind, a devouring fire. The maker of heaven and earth shrank down so small as to become a single fertilized egg, barely visible to the naked eye. An egg that would divide and redivide until a fetus took shape, enlarging cell by cell into a beautiful newborn baby. When I was preaching in Europe back in 2014 on a preaching tour, I was in London preaching and I went to Buckingham Palace, said hello to the Queen. And, um, not really, and uh, I was about to tell a story. Here, why not? Um, my, when my grandfather turned 100, true story, whenever someone turns 100, they, they would get a letter and a photo from the then queen or king. And so when my grandfather turned 100, he received his letter and photo from the queen. And tr- no word of a lie, true story, he looks at the queen and says, Gee, she's all right, isn't she? (laughs) Focus. Okay. So I'm at Buckingham Palace. And you do a tour. And uh, there's hope for us yet. And so I find out that when the Queen, now King, goes on a trip anywhere abroad, it can cost estimated up to $20 million dollars. Let us know that's an expensive holiday. Because of all the entourage and all the things, and they take pints of the Queen's blood in case she bleeds out, all this crazy stuff, right? Doctors, nurses, everything. And so in other words, if you're royalty on this planet, if you're first in this lifetime, no expense spared. You'll have whatever you need. When a baby is born into the royal family, the town crier will stand in front of Buckingham Palace and herald and announce the arrival of a newborn baby. It's a big pomp and ceremony event. Don't you think the Son of God could have had that times a million? And instead of all of that, he comes as a humble baby Born in an animal feeding trough, he couldn't speak, he couldn't eat solid food, he couldn't even control his bladder. And he was dependent totally on a vulnerable teenage girl for shelter, food and love. And I think the Apostle Paul had one of the greatest revelations in Philippians 2.7. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What? Did you see that? 
He didn't level peg himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus come as a baby? Firstly, humility. Secondly, because God is approachable. He's relatable. The word didn't just become flesh. The the word lived amongst us. The God-man dwelt with us. You know, for many of us, and I've already been speaking to aspects of this, but many of us, our image of deity is shaped by fear. One of the reasons that stops a lot of people from being a part of a church family and church community is fear. What will happen to me? Will I get judged? This, that, and the other. And the reason that there's fear is because they've come to view God, as many people do, as a distant judge with a big stick and a short temper. And he's just looking to smite you with lightning. The moment you think something, say something, do something wrong. And it's the furthest picture of who even the God of the old covenant is. You know, the primary emotion of fear is reflected in Hinduism through perpetual sacrifice, Islam bowing down so low that their foreheads must touch the ground. Jews work tirelessly to fulfill the obligations of the law lest they be rejected. But it's only in Jesus coming as a baby did God find a way of relating to us that didn't involve fear. Even the hardest heart, you get around a baby and you're like, well, that's cool. Even if you think they're a bit ugly, you won't say that because mum will in the head. But seriously, anyone gets around a baby, everyone, you start doing weird noises. Oh, could you, could you, could you, could you? You start like acting like an insane person. Why? Because something in you melts. God's like, I know how I'm going to get them. I'm going to come in so low, so vulnerable, so needy, that they'll have no choice that the only thing that could win their free will and their affection is love. We have an amazing God. To change Thoughts, if anyone has ever looked after a goldfish. (laughs) This is my world from emotional extreme to goldfish. (laughs) Who has a goldfish? Be honest. We're going to pray for you at the end of the service. (laughs) No, no. We used to have a goldfish. Now we don't. It started growing things. In places shouldn't be growing things. That shows you the level of care and attention that we provide. So this goldfish is there and it doesn't matter what you do to try and identify with the goldfish. I mean, you can get up really close, eight seconds later it's going to forget what you look like anyway. You can feed it and feed it, do whatever you want to do, but every action you do is misinterpreted through the filter of fear. 
You're like a deity. You're like a god to that goldfish. Your actions are so incomprehensible that the only way that you could ever even come close to identifying with that goldfish is to become like it. And yet a human becoming a goldfish is absolute absurdity compared to the cosmic absurdity of the God of all the universe and the God of all creation becoming a little baby. And yet that's exactly what happened at Bethlehem. The God who created matter took shape within it. He became the central character of human history. That everything that human history is defined by is by this baby that was born, that became a man, that was falsely accused, falsely crucified, in your place, died a horrible criminal's death, and three days later, rose again. And still extends an invitation of grace to you. Seriously. And people, we have the audacity and pride to reject him. For our own ways. We don't have to cower away in fear. We can come boldly to the throne of grace at the time of need. You see, when Jesus was born, he became two things. He became like us in that he could identify with us, but he was also unlike us because he was without sin. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. What does this make Jesus? The only one who can restore your heart and reconcile you back to the Father. I can't do that for you. Your mum and dad can't do that for you. Your great idol or hero, musician, athlete, no one, no politician, no matter what they promise, cannot do that for you. No amount of money... No amount of career opportunity can do that for you. Only Jesus. And so this is why you can't cancel Christmas. And you can't cancel Jesus out of it. Because from the beginning of Jesus' birth to now and all the way into eternity, on one history-defining night in a little town called Bethlehem, The two worlds of heaven and earth collided at the intersection of God's love in the person of Jesus. And when all is said and done, cancel culture will come and go. Jesus will remain. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall remain forever. I heard a preacher recently say, we have to find new words even beyond what Jesus said because Jesus' words were only relevant to his generation. I'm like, dude, everybody step away. Jesus said, my words will remain forever. The Herods of this world will come and go. But of the increase of Jesus' government, there'll be no end. 2023, with all of its global challenges, what's happening in the world, your challenges, my challenges, all of that will come and go, but Jesus will remain. Why? Because of Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. 
And for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth and under the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he, not me, not you, not any person in this room might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace with us. By the blood of his cross. So, if it's good enough for Jesus, I'm pretty sure it's good enough for you. I want to invite you to stand on your feet. Thank you for listening to Numa Church with Corey Turner. We pray that you have been blessed by today's message. Please follow us on our social media platforms and visit our website, numa.church.